Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today is Ryan Graciano, the co-founder and CTO of Credit Karma. As a co-founder and CTO, Ryan Graciano has grown the company's engineering department from a one-man band into a team of hundreds, developing a technical framework to support the company's rapid growth. His expertise and innovation has helped bring new levels of usability and sophistication to financial services technologies. Today, Ryan runs an ever-expanding group of engineers tasked with building out new products at pace while stressing a culture of agility and experimentation, even as Credit Karma reaches new levels of scale. As a leader, he serves as a constructive agitator looking to break down traditional workplace hierarchies and empowering each member of his department with real influence over the future of the product. Ryan has a bachelor's degree in computer science from the Georgia Institute of Technology and spent five years at IBM before joining Credit Karma. So Ryan, welcome to the Second Command podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me here. I love the concept behind this whole podcast, so I'm excited to, to speak to you. Cool. Yeah, looking forward to this. Um, curious what it was like for you to leave Big Blue and go into, I'm guessing Credit Karma was pretty much a startup at that point. <laughs> startup startup is actually a strong word, more like an idea, <laughs> although our, our, our founder, Ken, had, uh, had raised some money in the CEO. Uh, well, my parents told me not to do it. They thought it was a bad idea. Uh, and then my mentor at the time was like, yeah, I, I could see it, but who's ever going to give you their SSN? Just seems like it's going to be dead in the water. And so, uh, you know, my parents' point of view is, I think, uh, it's sort of emblematic of a different generation. You know, you have such a stable thing. Why would you ever want to leave? IBM's a job for life. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, at that stage of life, I was looking for the, the opposite of a job for life. I was looking for something that was more exciting and interesting and something where I could make an impact. And the risk for me was, um, yeah, maybe it doesn't work out, but you know, I'll figure, I'll figure something out. I mean, were you financially set already after being at IBM for five years or did you just have a small little nest egg put together or how did you guys, how do you grapple with that? And you didn't have kids yet at that point. So if by nest egg, you mean I accumulated a lot of debt. Yes. I had a wonderful (laughs) nest egg. (laughs) Yeah, I was, uh, I was just out of school. I wasn't making very much money. I had some some loans, and my my uh, then girlfriend, now wife, was making like twelve grand a year as a grad student, um, and so we were both completely dependent on on my income. And uh, yeah, there was there was definitely some risk there, but um, I you know I was pretty confident that if it didn't work out, I would figure something out. And we lived so lean back then. I right. mean, we had a three hundred dollar a month apartment you know that it was just a very different lifestyle we lived in tennessee in knoxville in a college town so it was easy to live sure you know, very cheaply and and is that where you were based when you started credit karma as well then or did you start in the bay area i was i was based in tennessee in knoxville uh because my my wife was uh getting her doctorate in nuclear engineering at uh ut knoxville uh outside of oak ridge so that's kind of the, the place to go and right. then Ken, our CEO, was in. He was here in Oakland, California, and uh, Nicole, our uh, who was at that time a chief revenue officer, she was in uh, LA and planning to move. And uh, so, yeah, we were actually distributed to start the company. And how did you meet them? 
was it uh, were they hiring or did you know them already or yeah it's kind of a funny uh, connection my my wife's roommate uh, in grad school uh, she she started dating this guy Greg who's now Credit Karma's chief marketing officer uh, Greg uh, and I became friends because we both moved to Tennessee to be with our respective uh, girlfriends and we were the only other person that we knew there and so we, we spent a lot of time together and he introduced me to his friend Ken who had at the time started a search engine marketing company called Multilytics and at Multilytics they were seeing what was going for top dollar on Google and so they could see that free credit on Google was just worth tons and you know they kind of oh. asked themselves why is this and started digging into the model and Ken had a lot of background in the industry and then that led to an idea and uh, Greg when he knew that I was looking for something else said oh you should meet my friend Ken he's got a great idea and that was the start so so tell us what credit karma is then credit karma the initial concept was that we would be able to connect you efficiently with financial products you know if we if we were, if we knew your credit um, and so you know the the lending space is really opaque you know if you go to find a a mortgage you don't get to pick from a list of mortgages they're all pre-approved for you it's this horrible process where you have to gather all this documentation and so on and so our idea was we'll give out free credit scores and free credit reports and then long term we'll figure out how to use that information to create transparency in lending and uh so the the very first version just basically was you know free credit score and and not much else but today, you know, we can pre-approve you for all sorts of products. So we're, we're pretty much the best place to come and find money and the best place to get financial advice. So is the free credit score and the credit report, would that kind of be then your lead magnet? And, and then from that, you build your list or you're building your remarketing and then you're moving people into the financial products. Is that kind of the, the model? Yeah, that's basically the idea. Yeah, the, the free credit score and free credit report and monitoring and, and all of those services are or, um, you know, or what bring people to the platform. Um, but what's interesting is that, you know, when you, when you come, you're usually, you're coming for a reason, like you're, you're going to get your mortgage. Credit is a way to get the mortgage. It's a means to an end. And so what we've figured out is how to make the end actually a lot better, a lot more efficient. And so when you're here, you realize like, oh, wow, all this stuff is pre-approved for me. And the rates are laid right out here for me. And so, you know, over time, you know, people will come to, you know, to realize that this is just a better way to get financial products. And is it true that you guys are now like, how many employees? Was it 800? Uh, nowadays, we have somewhere around 13 or 1400. 13 and or 1400 employees in how many years? In well, we've been, we started in 2007. So I'm on year 14. No. So you're 14 and you're at about 13 or 1400 employees. So the company's changed. <laughs> it's, it's grown a little. <laughs> and, and, and every day, this is the biggest thing you've ever done. Yeah, that's, that's true. What do you, how would you describe some of the, um, I guess, hurdles? Like, are there, are there a few defined points? I used to call them the ones and the threes that when you have, you know, one employee to three to, to 10 to 30 to a hundred to 300 to, you know, a thousand feels like some hurdles. Do you have any hurdles that you can, can you kind of walk us through what changed in the company and how you got through that? 
Yeah, I like the I like that model. I think that that model actually holds up pretty well. The ones, the threes, and the tens. Um, I definitely noticed that around that thirty-ish mark, and uh, I think twenty-five is when I started to notice that it's uh, you're starting to manage like a, a group. You know, you don't know every single thing that every person is doing, but high level, you do know everything that everyone's yeah. doing, and you know all the people really well. Um, I thought the most the most challenging phase of growth was right around the three hundred mark, when now you don't know everybody. It's not possible to know everybody. And you, have, you really need these structures of people that are working well and these systems of evaluating whether the structures are working well. And so I thought that was the most interesting phase. And when you were, you know, the hyper growth phase, when we're going from ramping from 300 to 1000 very quickly, I thought that that was when, you know, we experienced a lot of the growing pains that, you know, you hear of um, rapid growth companies of having were you how, how have you had your funding were you bootstrapped did you did you bring in funding we so we had some seed funding from a connection that our that our ceo had and then it was interesting we you know from we, we started in 2007 right and then our series a was in 2010 and and that's because in 2008 you know well we're in we're in lending space right and so 2007 is the height of the peak. 2008, banks are literally collapsing. Nice time to start, okay. <laughs> great, time, great time to go tell VCs that your, your model depends on consumer lending. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we, we pitched like 40-something VCs uh, in 2008, 2009 timeframe, trying to get um, a Series A done. And it was just so challenging. So we just weren't able to get the terms that we wanted. We, we had crazy terms come back at us and we didn't think it was worth giving up that much of the company and we weren't really willing to bend. So instead we just, we raised a bridge round. We did friends and family and me with my stag of like negative $30,000, uh, we put in $10,000 actually uh, just to try to, you know, keep things going and kind of be a part of the, what was, what was happening. Um, that was a good investment, by the way. That yeah. <laughs> best, best investment I ever made. But the, but yeah, we um, we had a lot of doors closed on us, and we had to just be lean, you know, save save money. What's that like when you're doing that and you believe in it and you know it's hard and and the doors are closing? What's it feel like, and how do you get through that? How do you get up every day and? It can be very demoralizing to have you know so many people not believe in what you're doing. And to, you know, not get that external validation and the excitement, mm -hmm. you know, we weren't on the front page of TechCrunch no. in 2008, but what we did have was really great consumer traction. Like people loved our site right off the bat and the member feedback was amazing. And at that time, because we were lean, I literally ran customer support and actually like responded to tickets myself out of, a, out of an inbox I created. And, uh, and yeah, just reading them was so energizing because people liked us so much. Right. And so it felt like we have something great. We just, we have to kind of weather this storm right now. It's interesting. I think listening to your customer is the only external validation we really should be listening to as well, right? That if, if we're listening to ourselves, sometimes it can be a little bit of that entrepreneurial seizure happening or that narcissism that's kicked in. But when you're really truly listening to your customer, did you share those emails with the team? We did. Yeah, we would pass them around to keep people excited. And I think what's interesting is it did kind of set a, a culture of not really believing in the hype 
just mm. listening to what the people say, you know, not worrying too much about what's on the front page of the blog, but yeah. thinking more about who's using what. Have any of those 40 VCs come back around now in additional rounds? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, hey, we we've done, we, since then we raised quite a bit of money and yeah. things went, went very well. And, you know, yeah, things changed. And, um, you know, also at the time, financial technology, fintech, you know, wasn't really a thing like it is Fintech's today. Fintech's and huge right now. Huge. Yeah. You know, huge. And How it's one of the spaces where I think there's tons of opportunity for disruption. How much have you raised all told now? Jeez, I think on on Roots, um, we had raised somewhere in the eight hundred, I think eight hundred ish million raised, uh, uh, including kind of kind of everything on on the way. Jamie and our PR team could fact check me on that, but isn't that kind of mind? Isn't that mind boggling when you think about that for a second? Like when you just stop and go, like, wait, fourteen years ago we were living in a three bedroom apartment, and now we've raised eight hundred million dollars based on the four of us who were trying to figure it all out. Yeah, it is remarkable to look back on it, you know, and the and it happens so quickly. You know, when we were in the 2011-2012 time range, right before we had really figured out how to scale the business, you know, to get the unit economics working properly, we were talking about just what would it take to get to our first 5 million consumers. And then I think it was a year or two after where we we had a year where we had hit 13 million acquisitions in a year. And then right after we were hitting 17, 18 million a year. And you know, now, of course, we have 120, 110, I think, million unique consumers in the US. Uh, you know, and that's a very clean user base because they're all identified by their social security number. And uh, you know, the, we know that they're individuals. So, so it's been remarkable that, to see the, the growth over the years. And, and where are you based out of? We are, we, our main office is now in Oakland, California. So not too far away from me. Okay. Somebody asked why you were based in Charlotte. Is that, was that like a, somebody have you confused with another company? No, we actually have an office in Charlotte. We have a, we have a great location there that we're growing very rapidly and we've loved the people that we've worked with there. I actually start, started my career with IBM. I started at a small company in Charlotte that was acquired by IBM. Okay. And uh, I went back later and I joined up with some of those folks and we, and we started in an office there. That makes sense. Okay. Somebody asked, um, I had a couple of questions that, that people wanted me to ask you. Somebody said, uh, in the data science field, it's difficult to develop trust with data providers. Um, what are the KPIs that the bureaus use to grade Credit Karma in continuing to be a data share partner as a service provider? That's interesting. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure what they're trying to get at with that question. We don't share data with the credit bureaus in the way that they're, that they're are, yeah. we're, we're not, we're not like a bank, we're not a lender, you know, so we're not a company that reports on whether you're paying or not. We're, we're our, our interaction is the reverse. We right, take exactly bureau from the, the data and give it to the customer. Yeah. Um, and we take data from the lender and give it to the customer. We don't, we don't really share data in the other, the other direction. That has been the flip in the industry. So, so where are you guys taking the company now? Then, is it are you going public? Are you just have you built and raised enough money now that you can just continue to scale this thing? Or, well, we were acquired by Intuit actually just last year. We closed in December for a little over eight billion dollars, kind of all all considerations, okay, um, included. And so now, yeah, I'm a I'm a member of the Intuit team. And how did that feel? What was that like when that happened? 
It was exciting. I mean, I think that there are a lot of things that, that worked well there. You know, I think that our combined mission and uh, capabilities really made a ton of sense. You know, for us, it's just, we, we want to make finance better for people. We want to make it easier. We want to make it more transparent. I want to automate the kind of routine, boring things in your financial life. You know, you just really shouldn't need to do a lot of things that you have to do manually today. Uh, Intuit has a lot of reach because of that, the tax platform that they've built, the payroll platform that they have, mm-hmm. you know, they just have capabilities that we had, we had been trying to replicate um, on our own. You know, we had built our own tax product, for example, and we had, you know, we were trying to figure out other ways of getting income data and expanding, you know, how we could, because if you're trying to uh, pre-approve someone for a mortgage, you need income. You can't just have credit. You need the right. full picture. And so they just had so much that we could work with. You know, I was excited to, to see that. Did you make any big mistakes along the way? On the on the journey to, yeah. to acquisition? Yeah. Um, we made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> yeah, I don't even I don't even know where to begin. We made so many mistakes. We had we had many different product ideas that didn't pan out in 2007, 2008. I I spent a ton of time working on social. You know, we were we were trying to be more of a social platform, which was also a route a route to funding back then. Because if you want to get funded in 2007, you have to have the word social in your deck, in your pitch deck. Yeah. And so we had all these social features, and um, one of the biggest mistakes I think I made was premature prematurely scaling some of that stuff. And it was just kind of a waste of time. You know, we spent time preparing for some of these social features to maybe hit virality and. And they never did and completely different things took off. So how do you, how do you learn from that? And how do you put in place? It's, it's hard to, to, to say no as often as I think companies need to, but without kind of killing spirit of some of the, the employees and the ideas, how do you decide what ideas to say yes to, or which initiatives to say yes or no to, or, or how to yellow light or red light them? I, I think what it's actually hard to predict what's going to hit and what isn't, you know, and and if you think of yourself too much as an oracle or use your past success too much to kind of justify your own prediction, I, I always call people into question a little bit, you know, and product teams, I, I run, you know, engineering, of course, but also I have our core product team, which builds the app that you kind of use every day and our recommendations team, which decides kind of what you see in the application and the design team. And so people come to me for product uh, you know, kind of Oracle type things all the time. And my first thing to say is, you know, that I always say is, look, we may have been very successful at this. And some of that was instinct and some of it was luck. And um, a lot of it is actually doing things and, and being attuned to how people are reacting to them and then adjusting and not assuming that I got it right mm. off the bat. Cause it's hard to get it right off the bat. For how sure. We'll do that. So do you just let the teams try stuff then and see if it sticks or do you? Yeah, I do. I, I try to, you know, one, I kind of, you know, what's the, what's the opportunity, you know, why, why would we think what, what would lead us to believe that people would like this thing? And if there's really no way to get a read, then, you know, okay. But usually there is something, um, especially if it's like adjacent to our space. Um, And then usually we're trying to do things to gauge interest. Like, is there, you know, a painted door or a blog post, an email, you know, something where we can just kind of, see are people just interested in this this topic or this this concept um and then if we get some heat you know it's a lot easier to go and build conviction and 
you know, and start down, start down a path. Some of the biggest ideas can be tough though to test. So you do, you just, you just kind of try them and, and see what happens. If you were to have had, had to have raised or, or, or grown the company without raising or, or maybe raising, you know, one tenth of what you might have in your first couple rounds, what would you have had to do differently? Yeah, it's well, we didn't really. And, and I, mean, I don't we were, mean I don't mean by that that money made it easier because it doesn't. But I'm just curious if if um, if you would have done things slightly differently. Oh, well, I think money makes it way easier. Yeah. <laughs> I do, I do, I do. Um, but we we just you know uh, in our Series A we raised like two million dollars I think in because it wasn't like today's Series A's. You right. Know, it was it was this was like a 2010 Series A and we didn't raise again for a couple of years after that. So we, we had made so you, it on. So you did grow organically then for a long time. Yeah. Until from 2007 until 2012, we had raised very little money and by today's standards, it would be comical. Right. How little we raised. And so what we did is we tried to add like kind of off, uh, off the beaten path business models. We like white labeled and kind of sold services to banks um, we would do like affiliate networks, just kind of anything that we knew would create a little extra revenue, even if it wasn't in the heart of what you know we were doing. If I could figure out some way to also build some feature that used the same technology, you know, even better. Mm. Um, but we did stuff like that actually, just to kind of bridge until and we just could... like anything to generate revenue and gross margin. You do that, and then you try to use that cash to buy your way out, right? Totally. And then once you're, you know, once we started really raising in, you know, kind of 2012 and beyond and the money really started flowing in, you know, I, one of the tricky parts is you just start hiring like crazy and there's just this sort of open door. And you have to, at that point, recognize that at some point you're going to step back and look and see what all came through. And I don't mean like individuals, but I mean more like what teams you funded and what kind of composition of the company you know, ended up looking like, and then you're going to have to, you, you'll, you'll discover some things, um, you know, some inefficiencies and some things that you, you know, you probably wouldn't have planned for, but it's hard to control in the, you know, when you're just sprinting. Is that some of the growing pains that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, definitely. I think that's definitely in the space of growing pains is just, and when you have that open door, it creates a very different culture, you know, when it's just sort of spend is, you know, go, go crazy, hire a ton of people. Spending is not the limit right now. It's just how quickly can we capitalize? And um, what I think one of the biggest challenges for us was that, that that attitude was very different from the culture of the company, which was be disciplined, get it right. You know, there isn't a lot of money. And so there was a bit of like a culture clash, I think at that time. And yeah, how I actually think we, we eventually resolved that is we, we kind of went, we went back to what, where we started and we said, look, we, we're a disciplined company. We're not gonna, we're, you know, we're not going to go crazy. We're going to plan carefully. And I, I do think that maybe we, we slowed the hiring a bit and some of the growth a, a tiny bit there, but long-term that paid off a ton because, you know, when something like COVID comes around, we're prepared. When that, when that kind of cash infusion comes in and you do start hiring rapidly, did you hire strategically? Like, did you sit down as a leadership team and say, okay, let's build out these areas? Or was it more the squeaky wheel gets the grease? Like some managers came in and said, we need more people. And you kind of gave them resources. Was it, did you grow based on who, who Yelp loudest or did you grow more strategically? We were a little more strategic. I would say that we had at the time, you know, our size and um, I, 
I was very connected, I think, through the engineering team to where, you know, where we were hurting the most. And, and we knew where, where we wanted to grow, you know, what kind of, what features and what was the, where was the business going to expand? And so we, we targeted those areas first. Um, and the challenge was we just couldn't hire, you know, fast enough to fill everything. And so that's where it really got hard is like, well, you know, okay, now that we've approved all of this, but in reality, what will actually get fed? I think that was the, maybe the more interesting discussion, you know, when the kind of reality starts to hit. What did get fed then? What was your focus? Was it, was it product and engineering or was it more on the sales and marketing again? We did, we went product and engineering heavily. So, you know, we went after that um, because we believed that, you know, ultimately we're consumer products and making better products is what we do. And even if we can't monetize them as well, it's okay because as long as we have people enjoying the product and getting value out of it, you know, we're going to be fine. That's always been the, the mantra of the, of the company. I invested pretty heavily in platform because at that time, you know, I, I was recognizing that if we are not dramatically overhauling the platform in this hyper growth phase, it doesn't matter how many engineers we have, no one's going to be able to do anything. And so I, you know, I was up nights thinking about what is this company going to look like with 800 engineers on this technology platform? How is that going to function? And so lots of, lots of late nights in my office with heads of engineering debating different paths and tactics and strategizing the talent that we needed. And we tried a bunch of things that didn't work and you know, that's a whole kind of, you know, ball wax into itself. But at what point in your, in your career there, were you starting to hire a lot of people that were just definitely smarter than you were, you know, that stage where it's like, I don't even know what this guy does. And he reports to me or two levels below me. And I don't even know how he does it. Like, where was that? Was that like a hundred people, 300 people? Yeah. And that hundred to 300 range is what I was going to say. And especially at 300 is when you start to get real, you know, real domain experts where, yeah. you know, I'm dangerous on in security because I dabbled as a, as a teenager and I'm dangerous in databases because, you know, I had to do a lot of our database work and you know, all those things where you're like, Oh, I, you know, I know a little bit, right. but then you get a real DBA and you're like, Whoa, I know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I remember we were hiring our head of it at 1-800-GOT-JUNK and Brian and I looked at each other. And we're like, we don't even know what to ask him. Like we have no <laughs> fucking idea what to ask this guy. So we had to bring in outside advisors. We brought in the head of IT from Business Objects just to do our technical interview. We could interview for culture, but we didn't know how to do their job. And then like the head of finance, I'm like, I don't know. I got a bank account. I don't know what a CFO does. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And I, and I I really made that my goal too, to get that, have that feeling, that same feeling of, whoa, I don't really, I really don't know what's going on um, at that depth. And then, you know, what I was really focusing on is, you know, which, which domains do I target first? Cause you have to kind of pick and choose. You can't, you can't hire everyone all at once the mm-hmm. possible bandwidth wise. And the advice I got was to focus on the things that I just didn't enjoy. So don't, don't focus as much on what I'm good at or not good at, but what do you not get up in the morning to do? <laughs> Let's um, get that off my plate first. <laughs> right. Get some, get some, get some experts there first. And, and cause they're, you know, one they'll they'll just do a much better job than you for your, you know, for your lack of interest. And then two, you know, you'll, you'll pour that energy into the, you know, the rest of the business, which is great. Yeah. So, so then what did you start doing at that point? Was it, did you, did your role move into 
strategy to move into developing people, aligning people? What does your role move into when you've got that full team underneath you? In, in that hyper, around 300 people, I probably spent 60% of my time, if not more, on just hiring and team building. And then tons of time on organization and just making sure, you know, that we we're making the right decisions and how we, you know, organized and leaders that you have in place at 100 people, you know, they they don't always work at 300 people and 300 people doesn't always work at 1000 people. And so you're just constantly trying to figure out, you know, how things are going and how things are working. And, and so, uh, you know, I was spending um, a bunch of time just on organizational health and culture. Um, and so that was probably you know, a good chunk of my waking hours, but then the tech was, was also, you know, very much at the forefront. And I wanted to get a really strong kind of three year, where are we going and how are we going to do it type of roadmap, which was also how I was evaluating some of the, uh, I don't want to say competency, but fit of the leaders that we yeah. kind of had at the time, you know, are they the folks that are they leading me there or am I leading them there? Well, and, and you do get to that point where sometimes through, especially through the hyper growth where people can't stay in the title they used to have, or they can't stay as the head of an area because they don't have that domain expertise to take us to the next level. So how do you have, what are, what are those discussions like that you're having with people to tell them that? How do you, how do you keep them, but also bring in someone above them? It's a mixed bag. I mean, in some cases, I think people just said, Hey, you know, this isn't for me you know, I, I enjoy this 50 person company and hundred was a stretch and now 200, I'm, I'm, I think I'm done. And, you know, that's okay. That's, that totally makes sense. A lot some folks just went and did smaller companies. Um, others, we, we tried to say like, look, you know, you, you love this size and running this size and we have a spot here where this makes sense. And that's harder on the domain stuff. So it almost never works on the domain stuff because, and the deep domains, the DBAs, you're going to get someone who only does that. And you have basically none of your initial people are going to be like that. They're going to be generalists. So what we what we tended to do is we would have like a generalist team developing features. And we would say, hey, you know, over here, there's a job that's kind of like the job that you've had at a similar scale. It's just, you know, this is this domain is a little, is a little bit different, but it's similar. It's generalist. You're building out a you know a new vertical or a mortgage product or you know what have you and that and that worked well and then there's you know there are a few rare people that actually just scale and it's yeah. I think it is more the exception than the rule but I saw it happen you know there were one or two people and then how do you scale how did you grow your skills and what skills did you work on for yourself as you as the company grew around you or as you grew it yeah I uh, I started this kind of this process where you know every year I would. Mat- so sort of ask myself, one, am I the best person for this job? And then two, in, uh, in a year, am I going to be able to do this job? And I tried to be honest. And I, and I would write out, especially in that 2012-ish range when we were in hyper growth, I'd actually write out like, okay, these are the things that if I were to replace myself, I'd really want this person to do. And then I would look at them and I would try to decide, let alone whether or not I'm capable, do I even want to do these things? <laughs> And uh, the, 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 there were some areas definitely where I had gaps. And I think the, the biggest gap for me was actually doing stuff like this. I didn't like speaking in front of groups yeah. or putting myself out there. And it was in the kind of 300 plus person-ish range where, you know, you had to start doing all hands and 
and I'm just like a nervous wreck for those things. And I hate doing it and I hate preparing and I hate talking and all the, you know, all that stuff. And, wow. you know, when I did that exercise, I, I just, I said, I, I'm not, I can't do, I can't exist like this. I yeah, have to get better at this or step aside. Yeah, you're kind of good at it. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I mean, that's not because I was born with it. It was because the first, when I had that realization, the first thing I did was I made an engineering all hands. Yeah. I made myself do it. It was horrible. I think, <laughs> I think some of you, I think your laughter is actually one of your strong suits as that leader in speaking, because it just, it connects the person right back to you right away, especially visually. I mean, some of the people listening can't see, but like, it's just fun watching you kind of giggle and laugh and, <laughs> And it's, an, it's a very endearing, engaging quality that I think doing in all hands or shareholders meetings or team meetings, like that's probably one of your strengths. So it's good that you work through it. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, that, that was just with the practice and getting more comfortable and just, it really was just getting the reps in mm. and going up there and doing it. And, you know, I used to spend a lot of time preparing and thinking through what I was going to do. And I was so afraid that I would say, the wrong thing and then when i would say the wrong thing i'd freeze and you know there's that and it makes you want to not do it again um right and the the one thing that i think i did really well is that i would do it again and i would just suffer through that <laughs> terrible experience as many times as it took uh and you know it and so i i i learned i grew into it and i you know i was very fortunate that you know our executive team you know had the patience for me to to do that now, I want to talk about the the relationship of you with the other co-founders. I'm sure that it was probably a super easy 14 years, right? Of course. Yeah, there's no yeah. bumps. No no hiccups, no bumps, no arguments. <laughs> um, Pat Lencioni in his book, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, talks about the fear of conflict and the absence of trust. How did, how did you, you with them continue to work on that? And, and can, you, can you maybe give us even an example of when there was a tough time that something you had to work through? Yeah, I think early on when you're figuring each other out, because we didn't know one another before we started the company. Right. That was a, that was hard, you know, because you're just trying to figure out who is on the other end of this phone. And we're not even in person. I was remote for the first few years. Oh, well. And so, and it was different. There, there was no Zoom, really. I mean, there was Skype, but no one really, or we didn't use it. We used Google Hangouts text chat for most things and if yeah. we had to discuss something the ceo would just give me a quick call and we would talk through it i never understood why people didn't use skype i've been i wrote about it in my book 11 my first book 11 years ago and i said people should be using it with all their customers and suppliers as a strategic point of difference because i said you'll build the relationship up and nobody did and I, I i was using it just to coach people all over the world but it sucked i hated the platform but it's funny and I don't even really have a good answer other than we just kind of went to the low friction yeah. thing, which was quick phone call or hangouts because we we're already in the habit of doing yeah. it. And we never did. We never really did any video. And at, yeah, at first, you know, there's a lot of everyone's trying to figure each other out, you know, so it's not even that I would say that there's mistrust. There's just not anything. Mm -hmm. You're just you're just learning. And the what I think we you know helped the most is just when we went through our first adversities and seeing each other handle those things and when you know we had um a moment where we had just gone into beta and we'd started in uh july 2007 basically is when i joined and i had built our first beta by uh, january 
of 2008. And our whole, <laughs> our whole model was give away free credit scores. And at the time, the bureaus were selling credit scores for like 20 bucks a month. Yeah, drove me and, crazy. And they control the actual score. So, you know, the challenge for us was how do you get them and give them away, right? And so we had this whole kind of goofy plan where we were going to sell like this concept to the, the business guys. There's a group of people at the bureau that makes money when they sell credit scores to businesses. Right. And then there's the other group that's a consumer group that sells to customers. So we were like, well, we'll sell to these folks and we'll hope that the other group doesn't find out <laughs> <laughs> until we're big enough that you know we're a line item that they don't want to shut down. It was kind of a crazy play. It's one of those get your foot in the door and, and like hope it works out later type of plans. And in, um, in March, uh, we, we had a lot of traction and we went big on slick deals and we had like 15,000 signups in, in a day or two or something like that. And just, I think it was later that week, we were served like a cease and desist, a termination notice from the bureau that said, we're shutting you down at the end of the month. And so, you know, it's one of the most stressful times in my whole career because we thought that everything we had built was just going to go away. Fun. Yeah. And so going through something like that and kind of, and seeing how your co-founders manage it and, you know, their, their dedication to the business and, and it just, I don't know, it creates a trust that's hard to replicate. It's the hard times. It's not the successes, you know, anyone can yeah. high five. Yeah. It's, it's when things really go wrong and having each other's back and, especially through that 2007 to 2010 period when things were so hard and you just had to believe and wade through a lot of muck. Uh, that's where the trust was built. Did you have to do a layoff when the, the kind of financial crisis hit or were you still pretty small going through that? We were small enough that we weren't, yeah, we didn't have to do that. We're actually just planning to hire and raise. So it just killed those, those plans. Yeah, that was a weird time. I was running a company back in 2000 when the this dot com kind of blew up and uh our stock went from 24 dollars down to three in a period of six months it was a painful time you know laying off 150 people at a time and it was not a lot of fun all right if we're gonna go back to the the 21 22 year old self you're just getting ready to start up with ibm you know what <laughs> it just blows my mind that you were there and then doing this is like so completely different what advice would you give yourself back when you were just starting off in your career that you know to be true today but you wish you'd known then well, my 21 22 year old self thought that i didn't want a job that had too much to do with people i thought i was going to spend all day writing code and i enjoyed the solitary nature of my of my activity. I thought that I just wanted to choose my own destiny and kind of do my own thing and be free of external pressures. And both of those things were completely wrong, completely wrong. And the, the COVID experience actually taught me, I get a ton of energy from talking to people and being around people. And actually that's what I enjoy about my job the most today. And I tell this story sometimes when I was at IBM and uh, on my kind of final days there, uh, I was on this team and the manager pitched me on a project or basically a, a job where I could just do whatever I wanted. And he was like, I'll give you no goals and there will be no, no metrics and your performance reviews will be great no matter what, just, just join the team. 
and he, he is, it was true. I joined and I could do, you know, I could pick my own projects and I just really hated it. I didn't like it at all. I, it's hard to work when no one cares really. You think? Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. So yeah, if I could go back and tell my 21 year old self something, I would say, you don't know anything. <laughs> you right. to, you're going to learn a lot. You don't know yourself. You don't know what you're going to enjoy in business. You just need to just experience a lot of things. And even if it's painful at first, keep at it because you don't know if you will start to like it when you start to get better at it. That's cool. Well, I'm glad you guys kept at it with uh, with Credit Karma because you guys have absolutely crushed it. Great brand, wonderful company, strong culture, and uh, and a good exit last year for you as well. So Ryan Graciano, the CTO and co-founder for Credit Karma, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Really appreciate the time. Thank you, Cameron. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. That was great. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.